This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. We have spoken over recent episodes of cruelty, of violence, of our new civil wars, where the polity itself is locked into a sort of stasis of relentless hostility. But we have perhaps so far only skimmed the form that this mutation in democracy takes, that the civic decomposition has taken. The greatest cruelties now can be executed very actively, not, as Eshwari says, through the spilling of blood, but through an extremely cultivated wave of indifference. This neglect, this cultivated, curated indifference of the other in a democracy forms the heart of what Eshwari calls neo-democracy, the neo-democratic condition. And these two words, inextricably linked from each other, form the examination we undertake today which comes to the heart of what this moment in democratic politics is about, neo-democracy and neglect. Eshwari, you wrote recently an essay in which you call it the jurisprudence of neglect. Will you, just at the outset, lay out why you use the word jurisprudence with neglect? In one very simple way, the neo-democratic condition can be understood um, as as we have been saying over the last couple of episodes, uh, can be understood only through a, a unique and nearly unprecedented convergence between constitution and cruelty. There's a reason why this moment, I believe, despite all its grimness and desolation, cannot be called post-democratic as yet. I also believe that talks about the death of democracy are slightly premature, not because they misread the situation, the peril, the risk that democracy as a political form finds itself in, but because they misunderstand the very nature of power that democracies work with, that democracies allow, and most importantly, that democracies tend to deploy for moral and political effect. Neo-democracy is not, in that sense, post-democratic. The neo-democratic condition is an intensification of some very, very specific impulses, temptations, cruelties that have always been endemic to the liberal democratic form. One of which, as we have been saying, is a kind of perversion of majority decision and its degeneration into majoritarian rule. I would describe neo-democracy, in fact, simply as the constitutional rule of the majority without a soul. In that sense, one therefore must answer what this soul was or what has become of this soul, but perhaps most centrally, if there was a soul to begin with in democracy. 
we know that democracy did have a, an act of political faith in it. In the 20th century, democracy becomes a global political form, comes to be in fact understood as the only political form that would bring social justice to millions of ex-colonized in the global south with the demise of the French and the British empires. That is the moment of its greatest triumph. And that triumph is indissociable from a constitutional compact. The world's largest, perhaps even most populous places come to an understanding that constitutional democracy is the path that they want to take. That pact, that compact, that covenant, in fact, was the soul of the modern and the anti-colonial, or to use a more um, commonplace concept, uh, post-colonial democratic project. What remained unexamined and what was completely left behind was the kinds of impulses and temptations, the kinds of uh, moral psychological habits, to use on Bitker's word, that remain unaddressed and became at one and the same time both more powerful and more oblique as new forms of political and social life began to emerge in the, in the colonies. Democracy as a project at that moment acquired certain traits, certain attributes that were never fully addressed, let alone eradicated. One could go on and on about the number of accomplishments of that democratic project. One could also go on and on about the sheer sweep and ambition of that democratic vision and promise. But all of that has been done. What remained unaddressed and what has since then been completely ignored are the common habits, our common virtues and vices that over a period of time begin to fester into something more. And it is in that sense that we ended the last episode talking about etiquette and civility and the ways in which those very normative ways of behaving in a liberal and an urbane democracy could hide perhaps some of the greatest desires, fetishes, and even will to cruelty. Our understanding of democracy must take into account, perhaps most importantly, this single singular feature, that what we today call a democratic society, some of the world's largest ones, most populous ones, Democracy still continues to be an identifying concept. No matter how close we look or no matter how close we come to tyranny, democracy is the single most identifiable feature of these kinds of governmental systems, social and political systems, of constitutional systems. And this is why I believe that in itself we need to understand the current moment as an intensification of the democratic desire, as, a, as an intensification of certain privileges that democracy promised. And in fact, its guiding resentments today come precisely from those classes of people who have benefited the most and continue to benefit the most from the neoliberal democratic order that comes into existence uh, and, and begins to consolidate worldwide um, in the 70s and, and especially with, with greater pace 
since the 1990s. Neo-democracy for me is, in that very, very simple manner, a convergence of neoliberalism's hatred of the poor deployed for political and electoral effect. Neo-democracy is not simply uh, an exhaustion of neoliberalism. It takes, in fact, from neoliberal hatred of the poor a certain kind of moral psychology or mentality and grafts it into a new form of electoral calculus. This is what I call the majoritarian rule without a soul. You just touched upon the hatred of the poor. And there's something here that that I'd like to discuss and to help understand is, you know, in March 2020, for example, when the lockdown began and in India, we saw that hundreds of, at four hours notice, hundreds of millions of, you know, daily wage laborers and and menial workers and, and, you know, construction workers were all left to fend for themselves on the roads. Transport shut down, absolutely no arrangements, no notice, nothing made for them to get back, often hundreds of miles to their to their homes at different parts of the country. These are the hands and bodies and backs that build the country. And yet, at the snap of a finger, there they were. And what is appalling, what is devastating about that moment, much is devastating about that moment, including, uh, you know, something searing from a piece written uh, back then by Arundhati Roy, where one of the, the laborers she spoke to on the road said, maybe they don't know about us. Maybe they don't know we exist. Maybe they forgot we exist, right? That is one part. But the other is that this thing that we call civil society, there was exaltation in the weeks that followed that unlike other parts of the world where violent protest had broken out, you know, where looting had occurred and so on, the civility with which the Indian poor took the asceticism with which they took that was fetishized as a civilizational accomplishment. And there's something going on here that it's very hard to understand where we have become so dehumanized that that kind of brutality, cruelty and neglect of the poor results in us celebrating our civilizational goodness. What is going on here? I think the one thing that is starkly visible now more than ever, but it's also become undeniable, is that that inequality has made a return. Neo-democracy is first and foremost the return of inequality, by which I don't mean inequality had somewhere gone away and we were just before now living in an equal world. I do not mean to suggest that. What I mean to suggest is that we have developed a certain armory or inventory of moral or even emotional responses to grave brutal inequality that we now believe is an adequate redress of that inequality. It is enough, for example, to express a certain kind of rhetorical solidarity with the poor or express a certain kind of solace or perhaps lurch into a language of empathy with the poor so that the fundamental systems of inequality, the structure of this brutalism can remain in place and even be celebrated as a civilizational triumph of asceticism over death, ascetic victory over a collective death. And the paradox of this form of neoliberal and neo-democratic redress to inequality, the paradox of this return of inequality 
uh, into the mainstream is that it now revels, it now celebrates not just the inequality of our living, the many ways in which we live unequally. It now also almost gleefully celebrates the inequality of our dying. Some deaths are simply not equal enough to be mourned. And we were saying in the previous episode, this manifests most powerfully, and not just in India, even in the United States, in the fact that governments would undercount the numbers that had perished, the numbers that had been forced to migrate, the numbers of people who simply lost their livelihood overnight, as you were saying, and were forced to simply move back thousands of miles. Now, this is where the civil society responds with a certain kind of empathy. The civil society, anywhere that encounters this form of movement, responds with a language of understanding. What we forget in privileging this empathy is that empathy is nothing other than the underbelly of mastery. That somewhere empathy requires of us not a certain kind of sacrifice, but simply a certain kind of registering of suffering. And in that sense, empathy is paradoxical also because both the oppressor and the oppressed are deemed to be equally capable of it. There is a false equality in empathy. Insofar as anyone, one can argue, anyone is equally capable of empathy, the master and the mastered. Except that not just the master, but the mastered too, while deemed capable of this empathy, remain locked in a position or remain locked in a relation of unbridgeable disparity between them. Empathy conceals disparity. Empathy conceals a certain kind of inequality. Empathy is the civic version of our irreducible inequality, but it is also the oppressor's way to get the oppressed to believe that they can act like him. And if only they could also act like them, they could also be like them, they could also respond to crises like them, the world will be perfect. What we forget is that the master suffers through the lockdown in sky-high buildings, the towering skyscrapers of the modern landscape, urban landscape, sheltered in air-conditioned homes, while the oppressed move on naked roads, sometimes barefoot, across state lines for thousands of miles to get to the countryside where there is nothing for them. And that is the enigma of liberal empathy. It assumes, no, it actually claims that empathy is a powerful device to overcome adversity because everyone is capable of it. But what it does not say, what liberalism will not say, is that this empathy is practiced under brutally different and unequal conditions. That in fact, empathy can become a universal value only under conditions of a violent disparity. We tend to put a distance between this disparity and our own privilege by responding to this disparity with a certain kind of indifference. Neo-democracy is not simply this indifference given pervasive social and political form. Neo-democracy is this indifference given an active legal sanction. This, to re return to the question you began with, is what I would call a jurisprudence of neglect. Laws 
are now made to actively abandon, to actively dispossess people, minorities, outcasts, races, entire groups and communities, strip them of even their bare humanity. Neglect was once or could safely be once described as a passive response. You walked away from something. It was negligent. You saw a dead body on the street. You saw an accident on a freeway. You simply walked away from that without a response. That was neglect. But neglect under neo-democracy is now the primary lawmaking framework. We make laws to make neglect legitimate, to legitimize abandonment, to force people into zones that can only be called literally no man's land. People perish, migrants disappear, children die in tin-roofed shelters in temperatures over 100 degrees on the southern border of the United States, and there is a law that lets them die. There is a law that lets even private citizens to hire bulldozers and demolish certain structures. This can happen to anything, to a mosque, to a shop. Neglect is not simply negative abandonment. Neglect is indifference given a constitutionality it never had before. It can be now carried through a legal sanction. Liberal response to that worldwide has simply been offering solace. In the United States, there is a name for this kind of negligent political spectrum that belongs neither to the fascist right nor to the progressive socialist or democratic socialist left. It's called the bipartisan spectrum. Bipartisanship is a commitment, I think, to nothing. It is a commitment to doing nothing. It's a commitment, of course, to claiming credit for something when it is done. But in its theory, it is the utter moral compromise we have made with neglect as a political practice. And we cannot understand the current implosion of the democratic form, nor its intensification, without this new jurisprudence, in which neglect has become an active moral and juridical force with which to punish people. This neglect, by its nature, um, as you have just illuminated, is deployed, um, actively deployed, towards the poor and towards the large swath of the dispossessed. They could be on racial, on caste, on on religious, uh, on gender, and on economic lines. But the question I'm trying to come to, the phrase that you used earlier, the hatred of the poor. Two parts to this question. One, why do we hate the poor? And when did poverty stop being our great shame and become theirs? When did it stop being a shame for a nation that its millions and billions, literally sometimes hundreds of millions, are starving. And when did it start being their shame to have nothing? Uh, in, 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 a very, in a very straightforward sense, when we realized that uh, neither shame nor hypocrisy were impediments to a certain kind of democratic life, that we could have democracy in, in a world that now believed neither in shame uh, uh, inadequate as it is, but there used to be a certain shame attached to a certain kind of, in a most political sense, a certain kind of political accountability. 
it, just about 30 years ago, if if some of the largest countries who that that even today have some some of the world's largest rail networks, for example, to take one example of public infrastructure, which is the first thing that is allowed to fall into neglect, public infrastructure. Just about 30 years ago, if there were, was a massive train accident, a derailment of the train, one of the first things you would hear is that a cabinet rank minister in India would offer a resignation and it would be immediately accepted by the head of the state or the prime minister. This has happened to many actually quite competent ministers for railways in India back in, in the 90s. You could think of people like George Fernandez or C.K. Jafar Sharif. And there were people who considered themselves as elected officials and cabinet ministers accountable to a certain kind of public scrutiny and most importantly, answerable to a certain framework of responsibility and even shame. There was a certain shame involved in incompetence, a certain shame, in, not in a negative sense, but in a certain sense of accountability when lives were lost. And I think one thing that has happened now in the last at least 25 years or so is a certain decline, both of shame and therefore of truthfulness. Uh, the decline of the fear of being caught lying as political vices. There is a complete randomization of truth regimes in which information and disinformation, the very boundary between them has been blurred beyond recognition. And that itself has certain grave moral implications. In its most governmental form, the loss of public accountability is the primary driver which also means that it has introduced a new set of distinctions between what used to be called populism in the 1970s and what is called populism now. At least in the 1970s, there used to be a socialist strain in these kinds of regimes. The removal of poverty and not the poor, it used to be called in the days of Indira Gandhi's administration, Garibi Hatao. There used to be a certain rhetorical homage played or paid to the idea that poverty and not the poor ought to be removed. I think we have seen a moral slide and therefore the comparisons we encounter repeatedly between that period of the emergency and today, to me sound a little, a tad too hasty, if not lazy. There are, there are decisive qualitative distinctions between these two moments of implosion of democratic norms, let us say, for the lack of a better word. But, but there is another irony here. I think this is important because, uh, especially in light of what we were saying about empathy. And, and the irony here is, is that we live now in a society of unbridled enmity. We live in a society in which any criticism is seen to be a personal, almost physical assault on someone. What used to be called a discursive critique is now a luxury if you don't get physically assaulted for a basic critique of the status quo. And so this society of enmity is possible not simply, not simply because we have become indifferent, clearly, but also because we have become... Democracies have somehow become extremely thin-skinned, to use a common term, by which I simply mean that it seeks consolation for its suffering. It seeks consolation of its suffering by reducing all 
the responses and all the uh, experiences, the very viscerality of suffering, in fact, to psychological categories. You were saying that millions could be made to move across a subcontinent, sometimes barefoot. We had stories of people trying to bicycle from Mumbai on India's west coast to the hinterlands of Bihar and Uttar Pradesh on bicycles with little children on, on the back of a, of a bicycle. And what we did at that time was offer consolation. We offered psychological responses to systemic brutality. And that is very, very profoundly new. There is a randomization, as we were saying, of the truth, which means that there is, there is a certain kind of randomization of categories in, through which we understand suffering. And it is in this sense that this also has involved a randomization of periods, of time itself. What was considered to be archaic is now the new. What used to be considered a response that befitted the ancients and the medievals is now the new response, which is offering almost a theologically charged, almost a religious form of consolation to systemic neglect. In fact, offering consolation in the face of organized crime against humanity, if you, if you will. And so all we are left with, um, all liberalism is left with in some senses, is reducing this viscerality of suffering to psychological terms and categories. Now, this is not to deny the value that something like consolation or solace has. But this, you know, this, this presence of solace and this value in consolation might perhaps be the very problem, the problem that, that even empathy has. And they are not in themselves without some use value, for it does require a certain kind of, let's say, an urbane sensitivity or an ability to grant dignity to other lives. Maybe there is some value in granting this rhetorical dignity to those who suffer to those who are vulnerable, to those who have lost their homes. Perhaps there is some value in that. But in every such instance where we respond to systemic neglect by offering consolation, what we do ignore is that that response is tactically limited to questions and to matters and to words and languages that are circumscribed by one's own sense of the world. We respond not to their world, not to their vulnerability, not to their suffering. We simply translate theirs into our language, our lexicon, our vocabulary, which is why we could say, yes, people, we can do that. We are resilient. I can fast for four days and they can walk for four days. And we believe that there is an equivalence between these four things, that somehow walking for four days in the heat of the subcontinental May, the furnace that the Indian summer is, is somehow equal to keeping a fast in Navratri. We translate and create a fake equivalence, which simply means that our response is now confined to our own sense, our own rituals, and most importantly, our own laws of the world. And in that sense, empathy uh, or solace can never be very far from rhetorics of resentment and betrayal. They very quickly tip onto the other. One morning, you have expressed some solidarity with the farmers. Next morning, you see a traffic snar and it uh, tips over into a resentment of the farmers. One morning, you are celebrating their democratic resilience. 
another morning, you are just aghast that a modern city can allow something like this to cause inconvenience to millions of commuters. The problem with offering solace is that it is more about the urbane citizen than about the resistant peasant and farmer. The surge of empathy for poor in times of a global biological crisis, as you were saying of the pandemic, which threatens everyone. A pandemic truly threatens everyone. But, you know, the response that we have towards the poor in times of such biological crisis is not very different and not, in fact, of a different order from a visceral hatred of those very poor people, as opposed to our disgust with poverty, which can be unequivocal. The hatred of the poor compresses within it both a love, a spiritual love of the poor. And remember in the Indian epic traditions, the Ridhra Narayan is a category. The poor is the most intimate with God himself. So there is a certain celebration of the poor. And then there is a visceral hatred underlying that. And this is the ambiguity that cannot be expressed within conventional categories that we sometimes use, such as neo-fascism or fascism itself. We need a different set of structural and conceptual awarenesses. We need a new set and constellation of conceptual and structural transformation in our fundamental commitments in order to understand when we let active neglect become a liberal democratic norm. And that is what neo-democracy, for me at least, does. You know, staying with the, this this intersection of neglect and modern life is is our aversion today. Therefore, to to sort of extrapolate from what you've been saying, is our aversion less to killing than to blood? So I think what how you're positing neo democracy allows us to do is to understand this process by which we have gotten crueler and crueler in blander and blander means, via blander and blander means. And a small example, for instance, is that a lot of animal lovers find it possible to, say, abhor animal death, butchery, you know, that kind of visible bloodletting. At the same time, demonstrating an absolute indifference to this kind of mass death on the road, which occurs without any spilling of blood. So in a sense, how do we understand the contours of neo-democracy? That, that's a great question moving forward, because we do need to highlight the, the, the underside of what we've been calling jurisprudence. And much of what has become part of an urban repertoire of responses to suffering, to vulnerability, to almost derelict sort of existence, is, is, as I was saying, a kind of cruelty that can be deployed for political effect, right? Neo-democracy can become a governmental form only and only when it has an electoral sanction or even mandate behind it. We, for example, uh, would think that a government and governments that undercount their own dead, that ignore these bodies of the dead on streets, on rivers, would be held accountable. But sometimes they can return to power on greater, on, a, on, on an even larger mandate. That's one political side of this moral degeneration of democracy, in which cruelty is the very point of it. You want more power to accumulate more power, not for the old school liberalism of 
redistributing goods or public goods. But the other side of this jurisprudence in which cruelty articulates and, and finds its form is what, to return to Judith Clark, what she calls moral cruelty. Right? Moral cruelty is not dependent on political effects or electoral mandates. Moral cruelty is a regime of habits, is a form of moral conduct. And its sole purpose is the repeated humiliation and degradation of the other person, of the unequal, to the extent that that person refuses to, or perhaps more tragically, loses the very ability to trust either another person or himself. Moral cruelty is the form of violence without blood that functions by making distrust the most pervasive element of a democratic life. Democracy turned into an arena of mutual distrust. Why? Simply because people have been unequivocally told that they should not look up to any sort of moral authority for any sort of redress. In fact, they should accept certain kinds of suffering as the sacrificial price to be paid for the good life, for the better life. One remarkable thing about the neo-democratic condition is while it can explain several common tendencies and patterns around the world, there is one distinction which, among others, which I think we should return to, which is the question of infrastructure and the question of fascist competence, as we were saying. In, in many parts of the world, governments have almost withdrawn from any idea, any sense, let alone a commitment to the redistribution of public goods. In some parts of the world, however, these governments have begun a large-scale, serious investment and commitment to public infrastructure because that is what consolidates their claim that they can bring the good life back. So th this is a return of the technocrat to power at the cost of the social justice exponent. This is the replacement or the substitution of justice by management. This is the replacement of freedom, as we were saying, or movement, the replacement of freedom by a new set of constraints that are simply more convenient or perhaps even easier to inhabit. The new democratic condition is not simply a certain kind of partisanship that we now see in the judiciary worldwide. It is also the weaponization or the politicization of infrastructure. One could argue that this was always a political question. Who lived on which side of the tracks was always a political question. But we now see that coming to a new phase of intensification. And that is where I think it is important to remember that when we say neglect, we don't simply mean abandonment of populations. We mean a new form of management, a new rise of a technocratic competence that is backed now by a theological energy, by a religious zeal, by a majoritarian pursuit of power that is infinite. Its appetite for power is infinite, but it speaks in the language of a monastic renunciation. 
those two things is what we were calling a few minutes ago the randomization of historical time the complete breakdown of any sense that we were ever secular or modern the complete embrace of a religious charge taken to a fanatical extreme only this time by its side is a new language a new competence and skill and most importantly a new love of technology as derrida says religion and technology were always meant to go together and when they combine when they combine there is very little that separates us from becoming murderously consensual society we sign up to a murderous consent that is what we could call a society of enmity uh it is underpinned however by a very very legal and legitimate agreement between citizens who have signed up for it and following ambedkar this is what i call india's caste contract our voluntary surrender to a fanaticism that today rides on our technological infinitude a barbarity that is at once archaic and intergalactic which defines the planetary in fact it's uh, fortuitous it's almost uh, serendipity that you you arrive at the planetary because my question was going to be about just this about the planetary we exist today this this new political form exists today at a time when we are looking virtually also at the annihilation of our species itself no matter where one stands on the spectrum of belief the one thing that's not subservient to belief is climate change whether you believe in it or not it is occurring um the climate crisis is probably the greatest threat since the dawn of the species to our very survival and it does not seem to be accident that this new political form and neglect has come to be at this moment they also mark our relation with the planet itself how do these sort of different dimensions neglect technology and and the form that you call neo democracy inform you know our relation at planetary scales and change how we are addressing climate change or not addressing climate change as a species we are actually not responding to climate change i'm glad you bring this up as we uh, as we close the episode because i think there is nothing more powerfully negligent right now than the sort of denialism surrounding the plain fact of global warming the plain fact of human suffering in face of and because of climate change and there are two things that i'll say in closing here one what i call neo democracy is also a choice we have made a choice or this this society of enmity we live in this jurisprudence of neglect we live by is actually dependent or is drawn from a moral choice and that is simply this given a choice between extinction and inequality the neo democratic condition is such that its political subject will rather choose extinction than it will choose an equal world there are vast swaths of the human species right now that are often governed by or live under democratically elected governments which we call in political theory liberal democracy these so called liberal democracies have vast swaths of people who exercise their right to vote whose governments transition from one administration to another all the normative parameters of democracy in place 
there are vast swaths of this population under liberal democracy worldwide that will happily choose extinction today over equality among human beings. They are willing to go and take with themselves the planet itself if the choice were between living in a world that is equal or not living at all. And I say that with a particular eye to something that we've been saying, which is sacrifice, the religious idea of sacrifice. There's a certain corruption of that religious ideal of sacrifice too involved here because they believe that such a sacrifice will be called for or in fact be justified for some greater purpose. That certain kinds of suffering is actually mandated by religious traditions, that we should go live through it I mean, if, you know, the most sovereign, most dutiful individual could live in a forest for 13 odd years, goes one myth among others. Who are we to deny such oblivion? And a lot of, it is not therefore a chance that a lot of climate denialism comes from the religious right worldwide. A lot of denialism around the coming and the unfolding planetary catastrophe comes from the religious right. Just as a number of attacks on women's rights, including their rights to abortion, comes from the religious right, which is not to forget that there are certain kinds of distinctions within this tradition itself. We should not conflate these. As I was saying, on the one hand, the conservative tradition that does not believe in and in fact deplores any taxation despises the idea that public money be spent on public infrastructure. It is, it is perfectly happy with that money being spent on wars, but not on infrastructure. On the other hand, there are some parts of the conservative right that actually believe in infrastructure, that want to make urban life smoother. And that takes us to another problematic of the electoral mandate that takes us to the very kinds of the many kinds, in fact, of resentments and disappointments that make democracy today. But what is important to now remember about what I called at the beginning of our episode, the return of inequality is simply this, a love, a perverse love of the unequal, which is grafted upon an enduring hatred of the poor. That paradox needs to be understood. These two things have come together, which is why vast swaths of the democratic populace today will happily take extinction, then it will take public transport. We're, we're going to close the episode here and your book, Radical Equality, in which you referred to the risk of democracy. I think in a sense, when you articulated that phrase, you preempted this moment in global politics in which the world's most stable democracies would rather commit suicide, citizens would rather commit species suicide than live by the very principles for which democracy you know, originally seems to stand. And I think at the heart of this phenomenon is the figure of the majority. And the majority along with that other figure that has come to mark this moment, the migrant, should be where we go next. Um, as we understand how majority decision that you forewarned often has a tendency to turn into majority rule, has come to, to rely on an intensified democratic mandate to run away with democracy itself. We'll be back on Mutant, taking another letter of the alphabet and building this dictionary of our political present and future. Thanks for listening.